Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on everything related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be following up on the sentencing hearing of Marion County Judge Jason Warner and his wife after their convictions related to a 2020 hit and run crash with serious injury to the victim. We're gonna take a look at Marion's historic sweeping police reform, including the state's repealing of the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. And we're gonna be catching up with the proceedings and the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota. During segment two, we'll be exploring the concept of substantial compliance and how it affects prosecution of OVIs in the state of Ohio. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and all of our social media channels. Look to the law office of brianjones.com for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. So Erica, did you see in the news this week, Marion County Judge Jason Warner and his wife were each sentenced to two years in prison for the 2020 hit and run crash. I mean, this situation still astounds me. I mean, you just think of like teenagers doing something wrong, trying to scramble to figure out what they should do to get away with it. It's it's crazy. So if you could just, I guess, update us on, you know, will the judge be released early before serving the two years in prison? What do you think? Well, I, I think you're exactly right, Erica, that this is very juvenile behavior, very immature behavior exhibited by the judge and his wife. You know, at the, the old cliche is a cliche for a reason. The cover-up is worse than the crime. And in this case, you know, had they stayed at the scene, had they rendered assistance, uh, had they taken their lumps for the mistakes that they made, I think these two very likely would have avoided a prison sentence. Um, but because they covered it up, because they lied to police, I think the judge in this case was very angry about that behavior in particular and that behavior from a sitting judge. And I think they suffered the consequences for that. Now, will they serve the entire two-year sentence? Maybe. It's possible. Uh, the sentence is a non-mandatory sentence. So he can apply, he and, he and his wife can both apply for judicial release after 180 days in prison. So they have to arrive to the institution and then that clock starts on the 180 days. Now, just because an inmate is eligible for judicial release does not mean it will be granted. And you know, Judge Warner is certainly familiar with that concept. So while we haven't seen the uh, formal sentencing entry come out of the court yet, it's likely there will be additional sanctions in this case, including restitution, as well as the possibility of subject uh, uh, being subjected to post-release control or possibly probation uh, above and beyond the prison sentence. I can't wait to see what happens next with this. It's, it is so interesting. But what's confusing me is that He's barred from serving office, yet we're still calling him a judge. Why is that? So I think that's a really great point that uh, Jason Warner, to date, has not resigned his position as a sitting judge in the state of Ohio. 
And in fact, the uh, state's attorney general who was serving as the prosecution in this case pointed that out in their sentencing memorandum. And um, you know, it's, it's pretty shocking that he's not done so. Uh, leaving the state now to request the Ohio Board of Professional Conduct and Disciplinary Council to, uh, to revoke his license um, in order to remove him as a sitting judge. Now, nobody convicted of a felony may serve as a public official or employee in the state of Ohio under a variety of sections of the revised code. Now, it's important to note that this is just one of several rights and privileges that are forfeited by anybody convicted of a felony in the state of Ohio, unless the plea verdict um, or finding of guilty is reversed or annulled on appeal or through some other uh, post-conviction relief or through a total pardon. Now, it's, it's a danger to, um, in, in my opinion, I, I think it's dangerous to general respect for the law and the administration of justice, both in Marion County and around the state to have a judge who's still a sitting judge be seen in prison garb and serving a prison term. And I think it's really a tragedy for uh, both the victim and the county, both of whom are still awaiting for the judge to do the honorable thing and resign his position of power and authority in Marion County. Regardless of their intent to appeal or the possibility of a reversal, at this point, you know, the, the finding of guilty has been made and he is on his way to prison. So I think it's, I think it's really detrimental to the administration of justice, but he is still officially called Judge Jason Warner until he resigns or is officially removed from that position. It's amazing. And I don't mean that in a good way. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine how he even has the choice after what he did. So can you tell me, I, I know that the defense, um, the judge denied the defense a motion to stay execution of sentence pending appeal. I mean, is that very significant when it comes to trial court? So I think it is in this case. Judges make decisions on whether to stay, you know, put a pause on sentences while a case is worked up through the appellate process all the time. And they make that decision based on the evidence that they see during the course of the trial and during the sentencing phase. In particular, things like bio risk assessment score and pre-sentence investigation reports. There's no guidebook or checklist or bright line rule as to whether a court is required or, or is, is to presume a, a favorable uh, request for stay of execution of a sentence. But if the request to the trial court is denied, it really says something about the person who's making that request, the judge's opinion of uh, that person's chances on appeal and that person's likelihood of remaining compliant with the terms of pretrial release now that the sentence has been handed down. Now, the Warners can absolutely petition the Court of Appeals for a stay of that sentence during the course of the appeal, and, and specific facts must be introduced uh, during that request period according to the rules of appellate procedure. In this case, both the judge and his wife were denied release on bail and their motions were denied 
um, to stay the execution of the sentence. Now, once the court sentencing entry is filed, it will reveal when uh, Judge Warner is ordered to begin serving his sentence and when his wife is ordered to begin serving her sentence. Both parties filed motions both for acquittal and uh, motions to uh, renew their motions for acquittal that were filed originally during the trial of this case. And all of those motions were also denied. So as far as the trial court is concerned, this case is concluded. Well, you know, one thing I like about you, Brian, is that when you bring up an interesting case, you really follow it through and we hear about it when there are updates. So this is a really good example of you updating us on all of the changes and, and what's happening as things go through the court system and what your opinions are on that. And I, I find it fascinating. So thank you so much for, for keeping us up to date. And I know you'll be doing that again later in the interview. Absolutely, Erica. And keeping everybody up to date about police reform, did you see in the news this week that Maryland has enacted historic police reforms, including the repeal of the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, the so-called Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights, and they've overridden the governor's veto of those reforms. Wow, I, just when I think I've heard it all. <laughs> I have not heard of this Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. Can you give us a little bit of information on what that is and you know, what we should know about what's going on with that? So Maryland was the first state to adopt one of these things back in 1974, and theirs was one of the most restrictive in the country. Since then, 20 other states have adopted law enforcement officers' bills of rights. They are legislation designed to protect officers from undue department discipline, um, demotion, dismissal, you know, for misconduct without requiring and providing particular processes and procedures for investigating that misconduct and, and other complaints. Maryland in particular was recently highlighted in 2015 when critics pointed out that the officers who murdered Freddie Gray by handcuffing him, hog tying him and throwing him in the back of a paddy wagon and then intentionally swerving down the road as his unconscious and then ultimately lifeless body banged back and forth from wall to wall, uh, leaving him with fatal uh, spinal cord injuries. He was paralyzed before he was dead. Um, they avoided discipline because of the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. So this particular version of the law, the Maryland version, came to, came to the public scrutiny in 2015 and it's taken six years to get it off the books after those officers exploited it to avoid consequences for that homicide. My God, the description of what happened to him just makes me so sad. I can't even believe that these are the people that we trust to keep us safe. I, I mean, even if somebody does something wrong, they certainly don't deserve to be handed out a death sentence from the arresting officers. Absolutely. You know, a, a traffic violation, a warrant for missing court should not result in a death sentence. Agree 100%, Erica. 
What other reforms were implemented as a result of this bill? So there were five other reform measures that were passed, um, three of which the governor attempted to veto. The Democrats in the House and Senate promptly overrode those vetoes and all five measures were ultimately passed. So there is a new procedure to discipline officers found guilty of wrongdoing. It will involve the input of both police departments and civilians. That will now replace the, the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. And the other reforms include a statewide use of force policy, expansion of access to police disciplinary records for the public, more severe penalties for cases involving excessive use of force, limits on the use of no-knock warrants, and mandatory statewide body cam usage. There'll be a prohibition on acquiring surplus military equipment and the creation of an independent unit in the attorney general's office overseeing the entire state, which will investigate all police-involved deaths. Wow, I mean, these reforms sound like they're really going to make a positive change for the future. But you and I both know that there are always going to be people on the other side of the argument screaming that this is anti-cop. What would you say to that sentiment? It doesn't have to be anti-cop. That's a false dichotomy created by the tacit and let's be honest, explicit proponents of institutional racism. Police reform is only anti-cop if we create the scenario where the rights of black and brown Americans, poor Americans and other marginalized groups are antithetical to the rights of police and law enforcement officers. When the reality is, is that they should be one and the same. Law enforcement should be held to the same standard as any other person. Just because you wear a shield does not put you above the law. With all due respect, being a police officer is not an identity. It's a career. It's a job. It's a choice. You know, you can't choose to be not black. You can choose to be not a police officer. This anti-cop stigma is designed to create division among us citizens and our communities that really should be united in the effort to reform policing. Because let's remember that this country, the most patriotic thing, the most foundational thing about being an American is being skeptical of your government. And there is no government official that we come into contact more frequently than law enforcement officers. So don't allow the government to divide us the people. That is a, that is a false dichotomy and we do not have to fall for it. Well, I appreciate your clearing that up. And I, I can absolutely see the difference with the way that you explained it, because you're right, it is a job. And even if your family has been in that institution for years and your grandfather was a cop and your dad was a cop and you're a cop and your kid's a cop, I mean, it, it still doesn't mean that you have to be a cop. And we certainly want to take care of our cops, but like, as you said, it does not mean that you are above the law and that you can just kill people at random without consequences. Speaking of people who uh, kill indiscriminately, Erica, Derek Chauvin has invoked his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent and decided not to take the stand in his trial 
for the death of George Floyd. Did you see this in the news this week, Erica? Yeah, I did. And it's disappointing because I'm sure a lot of people would have had some satisfaction in having him get up there and have to answer for what happened. But one thing I'm curious about, because unfortunately there's something new every week, it seems like coming out in this vein. Like, How did the shooting of Dante Wright on April 11th affect the trial? Do you think it had any effect? I think it absolutely did. The timing of this new tragedy is terrible for the defense. Um, the video of the stop was released to the public and everybody saw with their own eyes this officer mistakenly pulling her firearm and fatally shooting this young man in the back. Uh, demonstrations and protests have flared up, um, which has met with the already tense community atmosphere resulting from uh, the Derek Chauvin trial. The defense even moved to sequester the jury, you know, lock them up in a hotel for the remainder of the trial. Now, the trial judge denied that request um, quite swiftly, but I, I can't blame them for making the request because there's no way that jurors can get from the courthouse home and back to the courthouse without seeing news about Dante Wright's death. And, you know, having them be further swayed against uh, law enforcement, and that's going to work out uh, real poorly for Mr. Chauvin. You know, while jurors were, you know, they were admonished to not consume media about the case, there are First Amendment rights at play. And I think you know, limiting a juror's access to information outside of this case is, is really a bridge too far. So I understand why they made the request and, and good on them for fighting for their client, but I just don't see how the judge could grant that request in this situation because of the circumstances that they're requesting it. It is a positive sign that uh, community authorities have acted swiftly. Uh, you know, she resigned on her own, but she has also been criminally charged for her actions. Um, and you know, obviously there's ample disagreement about the adequacy of the manslaughter charge. It's good to see finally a police officer treated like any other citizen. I absolutely agree with you. And although I don't want to see anyone else die in this manner, uh, it is definitely, as you said, good timing for getting the right kind of results out of this trial where somebody is finally being treated the way they need to be treated. So it's so interesting. And I love when you talk about trials and strategies, and I'd love if you could tell us a little bit more about the Fifth Amendment and why would Mr. Chauvin choose to exercise his Fifth Amendment right I mean, you'd think that he'd want to get up there and talk about why he's innocent. Well, I think it's important to remember that it is the government's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt each and every element of the offense that they are accusing Derek Chauvin of. The defendant is under no obligation to take the stand, and there are a variety of reasons why he might not want to. For example, he may be concerned about the introduction of evidence that wouldn't come in unless 
he testifies, other negative information about him. He may be uncomfortable with the idea of being cross-examined and his ability to weather what is going to be or would have been an, an emotionally brutal cross-examination. He may be confident in the presentation that his defense has put on so far and not want to risk uh, you know, poking any holes in it, so to speak. It, he may just be uncomfortable taking the witness stand, although he is a law enforcement officer and during their most basic of training, they're taught how to be witnesses. They're taught how to withstand that cross-examination. They're taught how to uh, deflect any sort of impeachment that a cross-examining attorney might bring at them. So um, you know, there are a variety of reasons why generally speaking, people wouldn't want to take the stand in their own defense, many of which don't apply to Derek Chauvin. So why did he choose not to take the witness stand? Why did he stand on that? That's a question that him and his defense team will ultimately have to answer um, during closing argument, because that's a kind of a reality that defense attorneys face is the, you know, that exact question from jurors, you know, why didn't your client take the stand? And many defense attorneys choose to just ignore it and pretend that that elephant isn't in the room. And I think they do so at their client's peril. I think you're right. It, it's the easy road for sure. And if you can use the stand to further your case and you have a smart enough attorney to help you with the strategies and the types of questions that should be answered, and, and to help coach you through deflecting what the other side is gonna do to you when you get up there, then you know that's, that's much better for your case and a much better way to get the best outcome using the right attorney. Precisely, that's, that's exactly the truth. And you know, the other thing is, Erica, is that it gives the prosecution another reason to put on rebuttal testimony. So you know, they may be trying to limit the breadth of the state's rebuttal case. Oh, I see. Well, that's really interesting. Rebuttal testimony. Uh, what is that? <laughs> Why is it allowed? So because the state bears the burden of proof, they get to go first and last. So they get a second chance to put on evidence in rebuttal, you know, in, in contradiction to the evidence that the defense puts on during their case in chief. They can't put on a, a new case. They can't introduce new evidence. Their, their rebuttal evidence has to be directly related to facts or implications raised by the defense. It's not always used. In fact, it's pretty infrequently used in criminal trials, but in a case of this magnitude, uh, it's frequently applied. It's a it's, it's a tool that a skilled defense attorney will take into consideration during their case in chief, during the defense case in chief, because the defense doesn't get another bite at that apple to put rebuttal, rebuttal evidence on. So the only opportunity at that point is closing argument for the defense. I'd say that your clients are lucky that they have you <laughs> because that all sounds somewhat confusing, uh, especially for somebody that is not in court every day, uh, thinking about these strategies, keeping up with the changes in the law and following other cases to see what happens in them and you know, really taking that on when you're 
using that information when you're going forward with the cases for your clients. So, I mean, it's a great time for me to mention that, you know, if anyone has a criminal matter that they have questions on for themselves or for someone else that they know, I absolutely give the law office of Brian Jones a call because they just prove over and over again through these interviews and through their performance in the courtrooms for their clients on behalf of their clients, just how skilled they are and what experts they are in criminal law. So absolutely give them a call. Thank you for those kind words, Eric. I appreciate it. And with that, let's turn to our featured topic this week. Field sobriety tests and forensic testing are critical to OVI prosecutions. And the revised code and the administrative code, both here in Ohio, provide guidelines that police and government agencies have to follow during the course of their investigation. But the Ohio Supreme Court has determined that there needs to be only substantial compliance with these regulations in order to offer that information to juries at trial. Let's talk today about substantial compliance and what that means in OVI prosecutions. I can't wait to learn something new, (laughs) as I do every time we have these interviews. So what does substantial compliance mean? Substantial compliance is defined as uh, law enforcement or government agencies meeting the standards set forth in the procedural rules only to the extent that the errors that they may make are de minimis. That standard was set forth back in 2003 in State versus Burnside. Now, a de minimis violation or a de minimis error is a term of art in the law. And it means it lacks any significance or importance. It's so minor that it doesn't merit any uh, actual attention. In other words, errors that are so tiny that following Uh, errors in following the regulations are so insignificant and so tiny that we can just ignore them and pretend that they didn't happen. And the evidence can still come in against the accused person. This sounds like it could be a problem. (laughs) I mean, if, if there are rules out there, I mean, what is the purpose of a regulation if they don't actually have to be followed by the letter of the law? And are there people just deciding willy-nilly which things are going to go forward in following those regulations and which aren't. So the Ohio Supreme Court said in 2007 that substantial compliance doesn't violate the Ohio Constitution and it's allowable under the revised code. They said that in State versus Boxar. Now, the revised code itself says the prosecution has to demonstrate by clear and convincing evidence that um, the tests were administered in substantial compliance in order to, one, have an officer testify about the results of those tests, two, to introduce those tests results in a trial, and three, that the court, to allow the court to accept that as evidence if it's admissible otherwise under the rules of evidence. So what are we talking about here? Well, there's this three-part test. There's three levels that they have to get through in order to get this information into evidence. These, the results of field sobriety tests is what we're really talking about here. And what ends up happening is it becomes almost a farce in almost every OVI case because the concept of substantial compliance has been so expanded 
as to leave the regulations nearly meaningless. I mean, I, I have personally had situations where the court has said, well, the officer might not have told the accused person that they had to meet this particular standard during the course of the field sobriety test, but we're gonna say it's substantial compliance. And we're just gonna allow the results of that test in, even though an entire portion of the test wasn't administered to the accused. I've had courts say uh, that using wrong stimulus, that improperly judging the results of the field sobriety test, literally saying that an accused uh, did something that's not a clue, not a cue under the uh, standards is now acceptable and we're gonna use it and hold it against the defendant. And so courts frequently excuse these testing issues and nonconformity, noting that the attacks on the reliability of the evidence need to be made in front of the jury rather than in front of the judge. You know, our argument is this evidence should be completely excluded at trial because the tests were done wrong and we don't allow bad science into court. And what the judges are saying is, well, you can tell the jury that it's bad science. Explain that to them. I don't know how you keep up with all of this. It's it sounds like it's like playing a game where they change the rules on you all the time. I, I mean, would you agree? Uh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. So what options exist for the accused whose case was investigated in a manner that violates the regulation? Number one, a thorough investigation of all the tests and testing procedures during the course of law enforcement's um, investigation of the case is critical. You know, the defense attorney needs to pull training records, needs to review dash cam footage, needs to review instrument records, laboratory accreditations, um, you know, any other materials that are readily available or hidden by the government that go to uh, the officer's ability to conduct the test, the, the machines that they do chemical tests on were working properly and properly maintained and calibrated. You know, all of that information needs to be gathered. Uh, combine that, you know, collection of information with an attorney's training on what the standards are, both from a legislative perspective, as well as a scientific perspective. Now, step two is taking all of that information and putting it in a written argument to the court called a motion to suppress. And in that motion to suppress, you got to raise all of those issues that are, in, that are identified during the course of the investigation. You've got to prep for the hearing and you got to you know, get subpoenas out, talk with expert witnesses, scientists that actually want to follow science. You got to prepare your client if they're going get to the, get on the stand. You got to put all of this information together in an informational packet to present to the judge and try and convince the judge, look, you know, this is bad science. Do not let bad science happen in your courtroom. Toss it out. You know, step three is if the judge says, well, eh, we're going to allow the bad science in the courtroom, you got to have a, a very candid discussion with your client about whether filing an appeal is an appropriate next step. Are we going to say, well, you know what, let's argue to the Court of Appeals that the, the rules weren't followed, the science is bad, um, and we're going to make our stand in the Court of Appeals, or are we going to try and convince a jury that this is bad evidence? And this is a very difficult conversation to have because of the possibility of making bad law. Uh, we have so much bad law um, here in Ohio on OVIs. 
that you know creating more of it is is really dangerous. But the reality is, is that it's the defendant's choice. It's the accused person's choice whether to take that issue up on the on an appellate basis. So you gotta you, know, you gotta have that conversation with your client. Is this something that we can really win in the court of appeals? You know, and, and I think last but not least, if you are going to trial, you have to have a really candid conversation with your client about the appropriateness of expert witnesses and using those expert witnesses at trial to make sure that the science is properly explained to the jury. Because when we're talking about OVIs, there is so much science built into these cases. The, the prosecution wants to go in there and say, you know, drunk, look drunk, 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 numbers say drunk, convict drunk. And it's nowhere near that simple. You know, the average person's ability to perform on the balance and coordination tests is so low from, from just a basic existence threshold that those field sobriety tests have, it, in my opinion, almost nothing to do with actual impairment uh, of the ability to drive a car. The variety of things that can and will go wrong during the course of a chemical test, not the least of which is the lack of maintenance and any sort of cleaning and, and calibration procedures conducted on the machines that do the breath tests it would absolutely revolt anybody that uh, has even the slightest germ phobia. These machines are absolutely disgusting uh, on the inside and, and cannot be relied upon. Having an appropriate scientist take the witness stand and explain that information is, is very important to the success of an OVI defense. So, you know, there are options available, but you've got to take the right steps to make the appropriate challenges. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I know what you're saying is true. I mean, even like me, like I, I am flat footed. I get, I am not good at balancing and it doesn't matter if I've had a drink or not. And I know a lot of people are like that. There's a, a lot of reasons. Like if somebody had concussions, they could just be off balance on a regular basis. If somebody's on medication or not on their medication, I mean, there's just so many factors. And, and like you were saying in many of the previous interviews, like even some of the test results that they have can be inconclusive later because of how things are handled, how the blood or the urine is handled, how long it was sitting around. I mean, there's just way too many things that can go wrong with test results in order to just write someone's whole life off without really putting it through some scrutiny. I think you're absolutely right. And that's, you know, it's really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, there are ways to do these investigations properly and it's difficult. It is science and science is difficult. Um, and unfortunately the reality is, is that the government in, in this area is lazy and difficult, um, difficult and lazy do not go together and produce reliable results. And we're going to talk about that more next week. 
Um, but before we get to that, I want to thank you, Erica. And I want to thank everybody for listening to our show today, watching this show. And I want to remind you that if you want to become informed and stay informed about how the Ohio Supreme Court is interpreting the standards of performance in, uh, in science as it applies to field sobriety testing and OVI investigations, stay informed about police and government accountability actions, and keep up to date um, on the most controversial trials in the United States and everything related to your constitutional and civil rights. Look to the law office of brianjones.com or find us on our social media channels, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense and on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at TLOBJ. We will be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal injustice system news, as well as a discussion of field sobriety tests under the current NHTSA manual. And my grandfather always told me, Erica, when we parted ways, hey kid, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that, when I part ways with my friends, I add, if, I, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended. 